0: Welcome to Adventures in Evaluation Podcast with James Coyle and Kylie Hutchinson. Hi everybody, I'm James Coyle. I'm an internal evaluator in a large regional health authority.
1: And I'm Kylie Hutchinson. I'm an external evaluator and consultant. Currently, though, I'm a grad student, gone back to school, so I'm a tired grad student doing a podcast with James. It's 10 o'clock at night, and if we didn't have such an amazing guest, I'd be begging this podcast to go to bed.
0: This is the sleep-deprived version of Adventures and Evaluation Podcast.
1: A little bit, a little bit, but um, but I'm not because I'm thrilled. We've got an amazing guest today, and we wanted to um, have this person on the podcast for a while. So uh, do you know who I'm talking about?
0: We're talking about E. Jane Davidson. That's right. And Why don't we go ahead and bring Jane in?
1: Yeah, sure. That's great.
0: So we have Jane Davidson on the uh, call with us today. Good morning, Jane.
2: Good morning.
0: I'm saying good morning because it's morning in Auckland, New Zealand. Is that where you are?
2: That is correct. It's 10 o'clock in the morning.
0: Excellent. Jane Davidson is the founding owner and director of Real Evaluation. Many of you are familiar with Jane's work. Um, Jane, do you want to tell us a bit about uh, your background?
2: Uh, Gee, that's a bit hard to know where to start on that one. Like most people, I suppose I stumbled into evaluation without actually realising it was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I do so you know anybody who went into evaluation on purpose. That's only happened in recent years, eh? Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. So. Anyway,
2: that's true. So yeah, it turned out my my first evaluation job before I even knew evaluation was a thing was uh, a role doing quality assurance in the New Zealand Tax Department. So um, later on, I I discovered this thing called evaluation. So. Um, I grew up in New Zealand. Um, I did my undergraduate degrees in um, chemistry and then psychology. Um, And then uh, I took off for Japan for four years, came back to New Zealand for a while and then headed for the States to do um, a doctorate in organizational psychology where I stumbled across this thing called evaluation. And then um, the year after I got in the program, this guy called Michael Scriven walked in the door. So things got kind of interesting. Yeah, I ended up, I guess, focusing on evaluation for that. And when I um, finished up with that, um, Dan Stuffelbeam and Jim Jim Sanders lured me up to uh, Western Michigan University, where I launched and directed the, I guess, the world's first fully interdisciplinary PhD in evaluation. So I ran that for a bit.
1: Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, okay.
2: Didn't realize which bit about that.
1: I, I just didn't know about your time at Western Michigan.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. So I went up, I was up there for three years, um, launched this doctoral program to, you know, spanning the colleges of arts and sciences, education, health and human services, and even engineering and applied sciences. So you can imagine, it was pretty interesting getting that through.
1: You said, enough of this snow, I'm out of here, I'm going back to New Zealand, right?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, the snow shuttling was, um, yeah, character building, but... <laughs> Yeah, actually, it wasn't the snow, it was, it was the delights of the uh, U.S. Uh, immigration Service that decided that due to a typo in my green card application, that um, they would decline it all and oh. said, that's all right, all you have to do is resign your job, reapply for it all over again and then start the process. We'd already spent two years going through all that.
1: So, so um, the big burning question, actually, Jane, that I've, I've wanted to ask you for a long time is what does the E stand for? E Jane Davidson. <laughs> what my name? <laughs> e. It actually stands.
2: <laughs> it actually stands for Elizabeth. But um, I had some of my uh, some some of the students at uh, Claremont Graduate University or somebody there said to me, "Oh, we always thought E Jane Davidson stood for the Jane Davidson." <laughs> Anyway, it's there. Yeah.
1: So, There's too okay, many well, Jane
2: Davidsons in this world.
1: <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. Well, no, fair enough. So, no, actually, the burning question that I I had is around evaluation rubrics, and really just want to want to hear from you about you know how this whole kind of concept came to pass. And I, I first. I, you know, I, I was first exposed to rubrics in the area of instructional design and instructional assessment where they're used all the time and never occurred to me to bring them into the whole field of evaluation. And then when I started to hear uh, your workshop on it and some of your writings, again, it was like a head smack. Oh, my God, this makes so much sense. But, but um, maybe tell me a little bit about how you, you know, moved down this path of rubrics.
2: Yeah, great question. And um, actually, it was, I'm trying to think, like, where I ever kind of saw them. I suppose I I might have seen them in, uh, you know, we've seen sort of grading rubrics used in education. Um, I mean, I wasn't in education as a field, but, you know, I I was one of those people that we call a permanent student, (laughs) avoiding getting a proper job by staying at university. But um, the place that I first started using them was I was actually it was actually in the personnel evaluation space. So I was doing my um, masters in industrial and organizational psychology and I had a, a yeah. part-time job that was taking me through that. And um, I was working as a human resources consultant in the financial services organization. And one of the things that um, I was helping them with was to I guess come up with some performance uh, appraisal systems that were going to work better for them. So they had this ridiculous management by objectives thing, which has got all the problems with goal-based evaluation that, that it normally has. Um, and so what I was trying to do was pull in some of the tools from industrial and organizational psychology that I'd learned. So stuff like, um, you know, critical incidence uh, technique and these behaviorally anchored rating scales. And so I did a few of these and I just found they were too fiddly and um, they they like so much in psychology that irritates me they focused in on narrow things kind of favoring measurability over importance so I found that that you'd get something that would look like a very precise gauge of something but it was actually it was so fiddly and so narrow that it really didn't capture what was important and so I ended up sort of throwing them out and doing some work to uh, develop some um, a set of rubrics for evaluating I started off with some rubrics to evaluate the performance of senior managers and came up with I think it was about a set of five or six rubrics that were the key dimensions of performance for senior management roles and picked the brains of those who were in those roles including the CE and sort of figured out what was important and created I think it was about a five level rating scale and then we from that we had a a kind of synthesis technique whereby you would take the ratings on all these various different dimensions and then crunch them into an overall rating that they would be using to determine um, uh, things like performance bonuses and stuff like that.
0: Keeping in mind that this is an audio podcast, one of the things I wondered is how do we describe or how would you describe a rubric? Do you want to take a stab at describing what a rubric is?
2: Well, I, I suppose they can take many different forms, but a, a really simple form that um, you can create them in is kind of like a, a table. You might have a table with say two columns and down the left hand column are your rate, like performance ratings. And maybe they're excellent, very good, um, okay, mediocre, <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. poor, something like that. And then on the right hand side is a um, rich, multi-method description of what the evidence will look like if performance is at each of those levels. And so that's where you lay out um, how you're going to interpret the evidence. So that was one of the things that, one of the reasons I ended up developing these in program evaluation, Uh, you know, you can use them for policy evaluation and so forth too, was when I was studying with Michael Scriven at Claremont Graduate University, he was talking about this evaluation-specific methodology and how we needed, we couldn't just gather the bare facts, the the evidence mm-hmm. from our instruments and so forth, but we had to apply values
0: mm-hmm. to
2: say, well, how good were those results? And I, you know, I kind of I listened to him and I sort of got what he was saying in theory, but I thought, I wonder what that would look like in practice if you did it in a really practical way. And so, it brought me back to the idea of rubrics. And in the end, it's basically it, it, The form that the rubric takes doesn't necessarily matter. You can do them in a lot of different ways. But the bottom line is what we're trying to do in evaluation is draw conclusions about, for example, not just what the results are, but how good they are. Mm -hmm. And the rubric is a way of saying these are the ways in which we interpret what goodness means and how good is good. And so if we don't have something like that, we're never going to get to the evaluative conclusion in a systematic and transparent way.
1: And making it super explicit, so Jane, can you talk a little bit about the process of actually coming up with the Rubik because I could imagine that um, there's a there 's a bit of consensus building that has to go on with them no
2: so there 's a couple of different ways you can do them.
1: One evaluation I did that was
2: just really a purely independent evaluation, and that wasn't it wasn 't participatory at all and Basically, I used these terms like, you know, performance on this is excellent and something else is is quite good, but not excellent. And the client said, can you just explain somewhere in your report, like where those what what you mean by those terms when you use them? And so uh, I created a rubric that was just to just to make clear what those terms meant as I use them and therefore how I was interpreting the data um, but that's kind of an unusual case in my own practice. It's far more often that I would use a participatory method of uh, creating the rubrics, and partly this is because um, I so often work in areas where I know absolutely nothing about the content area. You know, I'm not. No. Sure I'm... <laughs> <laughs> no. You know, I may i I may look like an all knowing being, but. Yeah. No, seriously, it's uh, like if I work at something like, I know, special education or or criminal justice or something like, I mean, I don't know the first thing about this. So I need to pick the brains of people to say, right, what does what does great look like when we see it? And how would we know and based on what? And so we're drawing on the evidence from the, the literature that we know. I'm picking the brains of people who have got practical experience, who've seen a gazillion examples of this. Um, and so I get them in a room and, and facilitate a process to create the rubrics and then usually they are um, critiqued by other people Then they're, they're kind of validated in that way and then we t- field test them. So, it, you know, it can take a while to – depending what you're using them for.
1: So, Jane, one of the things that I'm interested in knowing is is – Um, how long does it take to develop one of these rubrics if you're working with a a group of people? Is it something that you can do in a day? Does it take longer than that?
2: Uh, Well, yes and no. So it depends on um, how many people you're working with, who you're working with, what the subject matter is, um, particularly... Uh, whether it's kind of really new territory in terms of content, um, also around how politically contentious it is, lots of different issues. But let me give you a typical example. If, if I'm developing a rubric that's maybe not hugely detailed, but it's got a reasonable amount of detail, so it might be like an A4 or letter size page, um, I could normally get a full draft of that out within about half a day if I'm facilitating a group of about six to eight people maybe. If it's more people than that, it's definitely going to take longer, um, but that that's just the beginning of the process. You get the first draft through, and then you'll need to get that, I guess, validated by um, whoever else is involved in the process. So usually there might be a core group developing it, and then you've got to still get it around other people who've got to buy into it, then we've got to field test it, um, that kind of thing. So, there's quite a process in, in doing it. They can be fairly quick and fairly clean, or they can be kind of quite involved.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things we wanted to know was whether or not you see development of a rubric as something that is most sensibly done uh, upfront. And if you have a definition of values or what's Mm -hmm. value, or what's high quality in a program versus low quality, if you do that ahead of time so that you have these defined a priori, or if you do it at any time or phase in the sort of evaluation process.
2: In general, the best time to do them is relatively early on in the process before you've got your evidence in, and there's a few reasons for that. So one is getting good uh, agreement on what constitutes quality and value before you start going to look for it. And it's much um, better to have that conversation in the absence of evidence than it is for people who have got a vested interest in whether the evidence looks good or bad, Mm -hmm. trying to negotiate how that evidence should be interpreted. It's much better to just do that clean. So it's kind of like the idea of thinking through how would we feel if the evidence didn't look so good. They're painting scenarios of what the evidence might look like, and that's helping them rehearse in their mind how they're going to react to it, what they'd be disappointed with, what they'd be excited about.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um,
2: that's a good process to go through anyway. But having said that, when you're developing them up front, you're limited by what you know uh, up front. And so one of the issues is if you're dealing with anything that's very innovative, then there's a lot of unknowables and what it's going to look like as the results pan out. And so um, you know, you, your first rubric that you might do prior to the evidence coming in might be kind of a, a draft, but then you might have to just do a little bit of rewriting as it comes in because now mm-hmm. that you understand what kinds of things you'd be looking for.
0: Yeah, and that was actually, you, you anticipated my next question, um, talking about it with, with others. They said, how do you, How does this work with a developmental or an innovative uh, type of situation, or um, how does it accommodate um, Unintended consequences, and so I think you've you've nicely um outlined that uh you, there's nothing wrong with adapting it, but at least it's documented and and ahead of time uh, yeah. without you know uh shaping the rubric to fit the evidence you have
1: so jane given that these are still you know relatively new in terms of their use how how are you finding their reception then at the other end with the people who are taking taking them and using them do they do they like them? Do they find them kind of restrictive? Is it giving them the the results or the interpretation that they're finding easy to work with? What's your experience?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, it, it depends a little bit on, you know, how the rubrics have been developed. You know, I've had some experiences where, you know, particularly working with government agencies, the rubric development process can be quite difficult. Um, bureaucratic and uh, having to involve multiple silos each of which wants their own wordsmithing on it. And you can end up with something that's a whole lot more complicated than what ideally it, it should be. So there's you, know, you sometimes get a bit of pushback on that but in general um, the reaction that I that just comes through loud and clear across all of this stuff is people have uh, coming from a place where they have been so unbelievably frustrated with indicators and how they capture such narrow and unimportant aspects of what they do they um it's a common story where people will say you know we're actually what we what we're producing is actually really valuable but the stupid indicators are so narrow and meaningless that they don't capture what's really important about this and so then you know they might and and then if they've been using qualitative work to try and convey what they're doing then people tend to not sort of tune into it. So it's a way of making capturing the, the sort of qualitative flesh on the quantitative bones, if you like, and conveying it in a more succinct way. So they find it kind of deliverance from the hell of indicator land. I don't know.
0: Well, certainly getting stuck on having a single indicator that's that's being used as a proxy to capture a rich outcome domain, right?
2: Yeah, or even if it's a set of indicators. Like yeah. the, those those indicators will naturally um, sample the parts of the domain that are most easily measurable. And what people say again and again half the time, that those parts that are most measurable are often the parts that are least important. Right. And so um, rubrics give you a way of just describing in a rich way what performance looks like using a range of evidence And people get excited about how they can finally get what's valuable up there in lights and used explicitly in the evaluation instead of, I know, kind of playing with these indicators that seem to them to miss the point. I'm not saying throw indicators out, but indicators should be part of the mix with they like your bones, um, but you've got to put some flesh on the bones.
1: You know, this conversation makes me think of um – something that I was quite guilty of doing a um, long time ago as an evaluator. And, and you know, Jane, you brought this up in one of your workshops where I can think of one report in particular where the language that I was using, I was saying this program appears to da-da-da-da-da. You know, it appears that these outcomes da-da-da-da-da. And I realized I, I was scared. I was scared to go right out there, put it on the line and say – this is the value of this program or this program is worth, you know, Worth the money, or this program is not worth the money, and I and I think the rubrics is something that really pushes you off that fence as the evaluator and makes you kind of stand up and and fill your shoes and say, you know, this is this is what I am doing. I don't know if you want to comment on that or not.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of reminds me. There's been a, a bit of work done with, um, you know, I know that Stuart Donaldson and um, and Michael Scriven have done a bit of work on evaluation anxiety, and we quite a, quite often think about evaluation evaluation anxiety as being on the client side that clients are anxious about evaluation but actually there's a hell of a lot of evaluation anxiety on the evaluators evaluation team side you know it's scary to put yourself out there and say like these results are quite good but not excellent or these results are actually kind of mediocre or that is actually really no good um you know people are happier talking about this for maybe a few strengths and weaknesses and you know Maybe the following may, might be the case, but further research is required. It's all our social science research training that's teaching us to be so cautious about what we say. And it drives managers nuts.
1: Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, you know, I, I think of some of those early evaluations that I did, they were extremely quick and dirty because there just wasn't a budget to to mm-hmm. collect all of the information that I needed to make a really confident conclusion. But um, yeah, the second thing um, that comes to mind is it seems to me that that if you were, developing the rubric at the beginning of the program it's almost one of those situations where evaluation becomes a part of the intervention because if the evidence is put out there um, in black and white then you are, you then you're starting to kind of you make it really really clear right and then those mm-hmm. lines between evaluation and intervention get a little bit um, fuzzy and personally I'm I'm okay with that and I know Michael oh Michael Quinn Patton, he who cannot be mentioned, is okay with that as, as well. Uh, so again, what, would, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, sometimes that happens, but sometimes it doesn't really, because in some cases you are working on an evaluation where the results are already out there, but you just haven't gone and gathered them yet. So in that case, you're just talking about, okay, when we go to get the get the results or go and gather the evidence, how are we going to interpret it? The evidence is already out there and there may not be time for it to suddenly change. But, um, Actually, a lot of the work that I do with rubrics is not so much evaluating at the back end, but it's they are used to build evaluative monitoring systems that are used to track progress along the way. And one of the great, most powerful things about it is that they make very clear what great performance is going to look like before people get into it. It's a little bit like when you, we learn a lot of this from performance appraisal. Of course, I've come out of the industrial and organizational psychology space, so I kind of you know, thought about that quite a lot. When you set up indicators to evaluate people's performance, that's what they focus on. They say, right, well, I'll just have to manipulate things to make those indicators look really good, and it doesn't really matter what I'm doing on everything else. So if, when you create a rubric, though, that is so rich and goes right for the guts of what's really important, if people say, all right, we'll just manipulate performance so that we look good on this rubric, you can say, knock yourself out, because if you do, you actually will be producing great performance, and that's what matters. So what better way can an evaluation con- contribute?
0: The other thing that strikes me um, is that it, it makes it clear as to what the evaluation questions perhaps should be. And... and I know you mentioned something about, you know, questions and evaluation specific methodology, so I, I, I want to pick your brain on this, is that a lot of times we have questions um, that maybe even come from our customers, uh, there's things they don't know, uh, but the questions themselves aren't particularly evaluative in nature. Mm. And as I was listening to you and, 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 and Michael Scriven talk at, at AA at one of your sessions, um, it, it really kind of struck a chord. I I think there's a lot of the what questions that you want to ask, but if you're not really shaping evaluative questions or with that lens, um, you do start to wonder if you're really doing evaluation and, and therefore, you know, is it appropriate to even call it that? And, yeah. and, and so I, I wondered if you wanted to, um, give us your thoughts on evaluative questions and, or if, if you see a relationship between them and a rubric.
2: Oh, totally, totally. Uh, yeah, I guess evaluative questions to me are one of the things that absolutely <clears throat> can make or break an evaluation. The, I can't tell you how many times I have seen, um, you know, so-called evaluation reports that there's just no clear sense up front. What is it we're trying to find out from this? Or sometimes there might be a whole, but there might be 150 different questions. But they're all so narrow and none of them are really evaluative. So um, typical in this space is is questions like, you know, how much has indicator X shifted? Or has indicator X shifted significantly? Right. Um, You know, and that's all very well, except the the problem with the way that significantly is defined is it's all about statistical significance rather than practical significance. But, Mm -hmm. Basically, I, I've been actually working on a tutorial that I'm, I'm putting up online shortly on how to develop a set of high-level, explicitly evaluative questions. And these, to me, are the things that help guide the evaluation right through. They stop you getting completely lost in the details because that so often happens. And um, if we get the questions right, then uh, we've got a much better chance of actually um, producing an evaluation of value. I think one thing that people kind of miss with evaluation, you know, and, and I mean clients as well as, as those who identify as evaluators, is that evaluation is not about measures and metrics and, and evidence and you know trotting them all out. Evaluation is about delivering real answers to actually evaluative questions. And what I mean by an actually evaluative question is not just saying, what are the outcomes, but saying, are they any good? And how do we know they're any good and on what basis?
0: Yeah, it's funny how it, it seems that the logic of evaluation is sometimes just implied. Um, it, it might emerge at the end, but um, it, it, it's not explicitly defined uh, step by step um, in a sort of, I, I don't know, logical way or in that sort of um, you know process. You, you're kind of left with saying, OK, well, if this went up, therefore it must be good. But it wasn't explicitly defined. And, and and then I think in its worst case, as you said, you're looking at a report and you have no idea really what it's saying.
1: And we get so lost in the, and as you say, we get so lost in the methodology and the data. And without those kind of high-level questions, we don't have a touchstone to bring us back to where hmm. we were, right? What are we really trying to do? Yeah, that's very, really exactly. interesting. But even when you get the high-level questions,
2: right, Kylie, sometimes I see like a great set of high-level questions And then instead of actually answering them, the report sort of free associates to them with data. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay. So Mm -hmm. they trot out. They end up trotting out the same old stuff. And I, I wade through this report and I get to the end of it. I'm none the wiser about what the answer to the question was. No clue. It's supposed to be intuitively obvious. But I as I think our job as evaluators is to actually answer the damn thing. I mean, you know?
1: You know what's so painful right now is that, Jane, your um, article, and I'll put a link to this on the blog page, but your article about unlearning our social scientist habits, right? And I've been using that in my effective reporting workshop. I give it to everyone. Everybody to read, and all of a sudden, here I am back in grad school where I'm having to unlearn my practitioner practical effective reporting skills because I'm back to writing academic articles which are just killing me. It's so painful,
2: Kylie. I feel your pain. (laughs) It's
1: so painful.
0: And so, along the same lines, I think you know, one of the things that that also resonated with me is you know, in our social science training, and that, that was me. Um, You may have learned about surveys, focus groups and various methodologies. Did you want to speak a bit about um, I think the title of the talk was uh, evaluation specific methodologies and why they must be in your toolkit or something like that and what they are?
2: Michael Scriven and I did a session on this at um, the American Evaluation Association Conference. So that was a lot of fun. And uh, it, it's kind of related to a discussion that was on uh, LinkedIn a while back where, where somebody started. I think I mentioned something about um, evaluation-specific method- methodologies. And, and I said, you know, the ones that are specific to evaluation and not sort of anybody else's. And, uh, you know, the question came up, well, you know, what on earth are these? From, from, you know, very experienced evaluators ask these questions. Basically, the evaluation-specific methodologies are the stuff that's about the values piece. So the word evaluation's got the word value right in the middle of it.
0: Right, And the
2: the evaluation-specific methodologies are the things like, um, you know, needs assessment, merit determination, importance weighting, um, evaluative synthesis methodologies that kind of thing so rubrics is just one of those the mm-hmm. idea is that if you are trying to answer an actual evaluative question saying not just what are the results but how good are they um, you need, need to be able to first define how do you how do you figure out what good is so one of the tools that you use for that is like needs assessment um, also looking at using other forms of values assessments to, to, to draw that into your definitions of how good is good you can use your use your rubrics to do that merit determination piece, so that's about saying how good are the results. Then you've got the synthesis piece. Part of this, when you get a bunch of results on a lot of different things, it's um, one of the most important things we do as evaluators to, to make our reports um, or our evaluations useful and actionable for clients is to say, okay, yes, there are all these various strengths and weaknesses, but we've got to say, how good and how weak are they mm-hmm. and which are the most important because that's what tells the client, what do I need to focus on fixing first and fast? It's all very well to say, you know, here's 17 different weaknesses and 25 different strengths. Mm-hmm. but They'll go, okay, what am I going to start on next week though? I mean, you've got to be able to say what's really serious here, what's most important, what needs urgently fixing, what's a deal breaker? We've got to be able to say stuff like that and that's the evaluation specific methodologies do that.
0: Evaluation-specific methodologies make me feel special. They give me something that's different than perhaps some of our other colleagues and all their methods. So I'm looking forward to. Um... James,
2: you are special. You're an evaluator.
0: <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> well, I'm I'm gonna uh, create a special audio file. I'm gonna that's gonna be my ringtone. James, you're special. <laughs> just every, every time, I'll just hear hear your voice.
1: <laughs> Great. Well, you know, I've got this great little ebook that's printed out and sitting on my bedside table that I kind of nibble away at, you know, at night. Jane, did you, uh, did you want to do a little plug for your book? Oh,
2: sure, why not? So I got this is about this must be surely the cheapest evaluation book you can buy, right? So yeah, I've got this. Uh, I've got this little mini book called Actionable Evaluation. Getting succinct answers to the most important questions. So it talks a little bit about rubrics. It talks about those high-level evaluation questions that we've talked about. But it also puts it in a broader framework for, you know, how do we make sure we get all this right? Kind of, kind of a step-by-step through the process. Um, it's available in Spanish. Um, and uh there's a version in French coming soon. I've just had uh we've got the first draft of a translation into French, so that's kind of fun and I've had some contact from some other people who are working on other languages, so this is kind of fun
0: and finally, finally, it's also an evaluation book that's available on a Kindle,
2: yeah. Finally,
0: how oh, sweet is you know
2: what I was talking to uh, Michael Quinn Patton at the American Evaluation Association conference, and he said he said I really like the self-publishing stuff. He said I might even go there with my next you know great. New book. Obviously, you can't do it with subsequent editions of something that's already signed up with a publisher, but yeah. the nice thing is you get to retain your own um, intellectual property and kind of just do with it what you want. Mm-hmm. So it, it, they're fun. It's it's short and sweet. It's only about 50 pages. Some people said they could just about read it over breakfast, but it's great for like you know that downtime. I always read in airports when I've got downtime in planes or waiting for flights or something like that. So I take my Kindle and read all my stuff on there. So what are you working on now, Jane? The thing that I'm concentrating most on at the moment is I'm creating an online tutorial on um, how to how to create those high-level uh, evaluative questions to guide your whole evaluation. So I'm doing a a kind of a tutorial and a mini quiz and then a live Q&A webinar and, uh, you know, maybe we'll throw some podcasts in there. I don't know. Um, I'm going to package that together. And then the other main thing that I'm working on is um, I want to do another mini book uh, based on some other works. I did five workshops this year on causal inference for qualitative and mixed methods. So that's more stuff about the reasoning, you know, so the idea is, um, the gold standard for, for causal inference is not any one method. It's sound causal reasoning backed by the right mix of methods to get the job done. And you can do it purely qualitatively. Hmm. Amazing, but true. Did you know the better site has got something like 26 different methods for inferring causation and only one of those is RCTs? Think about wow. it. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's something that needs to get out there, isn't it? Not so much for the evaluators, but for the people commissioning the evaluations, the senior decision makers who have this idea that if it's not coming from an RCT, then it has no worth or value. Yeah, yeah. Good to hear. All right. James, do you want to wrap up?
0: Sure. Well, Jane, it's been great to speak with you. Uh, I know Kylie and I both enjoyed it, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Uh, We'll be happy to post all the uh, links to information and content we talked about today. Uh, We'd encourage folks to go to our site to see that information at adventuresinevaluation.podbean.com. Please leave us a message, uh, suggestions for future topics, any protests you may have. Uh, You can also contact us directly by email at podcast at gmail.com. I just want to thank you again um, and uh, really appreciate the work you're doing. Appreciate um, all the different kinds of mediums and uh, as Kylie said uh, before, it's uh, it's great to have someone who's able to speak eloquently, but very uh, sort of practically about the work we do. And um, it helps, I think, a lot of us, uh, I don't want to say get back to basics, but kind of cut through a lot of the sort of um, uh, messiness or complexity that we've maybe got a little lost in at times.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Well said, James. Yeah. Thanks very much, Jane. I really appreciated it.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me, you guys. That was a lot of fun. It was cool. You guys are doing a great job with this podcast thing, like leading the world.
1: Thanks, Jane. Take care, everybody.